You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. I'm joined now by Hamish McKenzie, co-founder of the email platform Substack. Now, Substack's focus is on helping journalists get paid for writing newsletters. Earlier in his career, Hamish worked as a journalist in his home country of New Zealand, in Hong Kong, and in the US. He also worked for electric car company Tesla, and is the author of Insane Mode, about the arrival of the battery revolution. If you're close to the news media business, you probably already have a point of view on Substack. It's only four years old, but it's already being talked about in much the same way that journalists were talking about WordPress 15 years ago. Its valuation is already close to a billion Australian dollars. Now, Hamish, before we talk about Substack, let me ask you a question about your mindset. Now, your LinkedIn profile, of course, describes you as co-founder and chief operating officer of Substack. But... Are you still at heart a journalist? Yeah, I think so. I never wanted to leave journalism. I didn't I didn't intend to leave journalism, but I had this crazy opportunity to go see inside Tesla uh, in 2014, the really interesting point of its evolution. And it was just uh, too wild to say no to. So I thought, well, maybe maybe I could go leave journalism for a bit to do that. And I pretty quickly... <laughs> Return to journalism as soon as I had an opportunity to do so, uh, which is to write the book after I left Tesla. Um, I I do concede that now I am a businessman. It's not fair to say I'm still a journalist. I don't really do journalism, but I do occupy the perspective of a writer and, and journalist and try to like all my good friends are journalists. <laughs> more, more friends who are journalists than a businessman. <laughs> well, one of the things that does interest me about Substack, as I was saying, is that it does remind me of when WordPress came through. So I started Mumbrella in 2008, and it was really just a simple blog on WordPress. And that just took a few hours to set up. And then I just was able to focus on writing until we had some momentum. So it, it strikes me that you do have that similar approach with Substack. Let's let's talk about simplicity. Um, and I guess that's the question for me is, how do you balance that simplicity of getting going with offering a bit of sophistication of features that I'm sure media people will want as they begin to grow? How do you think about simplicity versus complexity? Thanks very much for the compliment. Comparing us to WordPress, what a, like a massive compliment that is. Um, the whole idea was Substack was to make it as simple as possible for writers to kind of instantly start a media business um, with the right principles in, in place. And for us, the right principles are a, a way to reach an audience that wants to hear from you a lot. It's there for they can be on a mailing list. Um, a way to help get in front of readers who wouldn't otherwise have heard of you or aren't already on your mailing list. So that's the web component with Substack, so website and uh, the ability to publish to newsletters, uh, emails, and uh, the ability to be paid directly by your readers through subscriptions. And so the kind of ideal we go for is to make it so that writers themselves don't have to be genius business minds or don't have to be genius technology people or design people. They can just type into a box click publish and if the stuff they typed into that box is good enough money will magically appear in their bank account and they'll one day get rich <laughs> um, or at least make um, 
decent income and perhaps a living. So many writers, I'm one of them, don't want to really mess around with the uh, arcane business trivia or technology setups. They just want to focus on doing the good work that they care about the most, which is the writing or the journalism itself. So the first um, priority for us is to make that whole process of getting started as simple as possible. And they don't have to get more deep than that. They can just continue on typing stuff into a box and clicking publish. But people do get interested in doing, people do get interested, even writers get interested in optimizing their business or like getting better at making money. And for those people, we want to be forever improving the product to support them without making it too complicated or too complex. And so there are ways that we can help solve some of the things that people want to do. Uh, For instance, emailing a certain section of your mailing list to put a special offer in front of them. And rather than approach that as a email marketing platform might do uh, with lots of fine granular controls and kind of jargon that is relevant to the advertising industry, we want to make it as user-friendly and uh, simple as possible so that with clear steps and clear language, you as the writer can figure out how to do the right thing almost by default um, without getting in your own way. <laughs> um, so it is, a, it is a balance, but some of these things, uh, some of the more complex things uh, we're able to introduce in a way that still retains that principle of simplicity. Well, look, and I think one of the interesting things as well is, and, and I'm sure it's no coincidence, this is the point at which sort of Substack comes through, is if I think about the sort of the trends, the media trends over the last decade, one of the big ones has been the move away from advertising being the prime thing that funds news and journalism to reader pays or audience pays. Um, but of course, although the, the balance has changed, both are still kind of ways of funding it. How how do you think about advertising within the Substack ecosystem? If if not now, then in the future. Well, I don't want to upset your listeners, <laughs> but we are not. Uh, we have no intention of supporting advertising in Substack. Um, we are not going to build advertising technology into Substack, and it's not because we think advertising is evil but it's because we're really excited about the potential for subscriptions and direct payments as a way to support the kind of work that we're hoping to enable Um, and we kind of look at it like there's been 30 years of innovation and iteration in internet advertising now Um, and we haven't really even got started on innovation and iteration with direct payments and subscriptions and we think there's a whole lot of great energy to unlock there by applying some serious focus and saying no to the other thing, no to the to the other way of doing it. And how do you feel? I mean, I've, certainly I've seen substacks where people effectively they find workarounds. You know, the the, the the journalist will effectively embed an image which is the ad. You know, with a you, you know, and sort of uh, give the shout out to the sponsor. I presume that it's not that you're inherently against it. It's just that that's not the world you're looking to play in. Yeah, we're not looking to encourage. Uh, a continuation of the world that is kind of breaking down for media businesses and um, for writers is kind of failing writers in the, cu- in the current model. 
um, we're trying to encourage a shift to a new way of thinking and a new way of doing things. And so part of what we really care about at Substack is giving readers and writers the power, putting them in charge. And so some writers are going to want to do some hacked version of advertising into their products and some sort of native advertising, I guess you could call it. Um, yeah, in ter- so every, every signal we send out to the world in terms of um, uh, about our values and uh, in terms of what we write or uh, appear on podcasts, anything like that, we want to encourage people to shift to this new model, which is uh, direct support from readers uh, and subscriptions. And we think that your uh, potential for succeeding with that new model is greatly uh, amplified if that is the sole thing you're focusing on, if you're not splitting the baby by also doing a little bit of advertising where there's a different customer. Well, let's um, talk about some of the, I guess, the the adding of bells and whistles. Um, I see uh, see on Axios shortly before we were um, recording that um, you've just invested in Booksmart Studios, which is your your biggest podcast play, I guess. It's yeah, investments like investments. There words. It's not to be understood as an investment. Like we are putting some money in and claiming equity in the company. We are doing a standard kind of Substack Pro deal with that. Uh, group, which is um, where we use money to help take out some of the financial risk for writers or groups of writers who are looking to make the leap from one state into another state where they become focused full-time on Substack. And the model works is we we pay an upfront sum of money that gives them the financial um, confidence to go and do this for a year. And on top of that, they keep 15% of the revenue that they generate from subscriptions and at the end of the year, we kick away the training wheels. They're on their own, but they keep um, 90% of the revenue. The theory being that by that stage, they've got a good um, going concern, a good healthy business with re- growing revenue. And that's important because lots of writers um, are scared to lose, leave their jobs, even if they really want to go independent because jobs, uh, in the, even in the media industry, offer this kind of illusion of security. And um, we want to take away that concern for them. So, yeah, bells and whistles, podcasting, uh, video, community, all of this is possible in Substack, and we want to keep encouraging these um, great, talented uh, producers, writers, uh, filmmakers, podcasters to push the boundaries of what's possible with the model. Well, let's um, let's t- touch a bit more on um, uh, Substack Pro. Now, how does it work when you are looking to persuade someone to make the leap? Do they come to you? Do you identify the people that you'd like to work with and approach them? What, what what's the usual what's what 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 what's the what's the usual sort of sequence of events? Uh, it's a true mix, um, and it started off. So the company is four years old. Uh, two two years ago, there were only three of us. I was the guy who went out and got all the writers and convinced them to come to Substack and then help them succeed. And the pitch we made to writers then was, we think this model can work really well for you. Uh, with subscriptions, you don't be, you don't need to reach a million people for it to be financially interesting. You're not trying to get the dribs and drabs from advertising revenue. You're trying to um, monetize the devotion of your audience, the people who really care about your work. And if there are a thousand people willing to pay you fifty bucks a year, that's enough for a living in most places in the world. Um, and then would show them examples of people who are succeeding on Substack. 
And for lots of people, that was a compelling pitch. And we did get a lot of great writers on board. Um, and they also appreciate the simplicity and the intellectual freedom of being able to pursue the kind of works that they find most meaningful. But for other writers, there was a like the financial piece was a, a, a blocker. Like it's hard to step into the unknown like that and, um, n- you know, l- forsake a steady salary or income. Um, and so we could, we found with pro, we could have the structure where we could convince people that it's a risk worth taking because actually the risk isn't that high because we've got them covered for a year. And once we figured out that that was a, a good model and it was successful, it helped the writers and it helped Substack, the company, then we thought we should put a more of a concerted effort in approaching people with the deals. And so we look for people who we think can succeed with the model. And that's usually assessed on their business potential. One of the things that fascinates me about right now is this question of whether the role of individual journalist as brand versus news masthead, whether we're reaching some sort of tipping point or whether this is just a, you know, a, um, a, a a category within a bigger category because clearly what you're you're really looking to speak to is individual journalists rather than in the main news companies yeah the well we don't claim to be the entire media ecosystem and we don't claim to be able to like fix the all the woes of the current media um, ecosystem we think this is an interesting model for some portion of the media ecosystem and uh for writers who aren't already professional writers, but maybe in the future because this model and this platform exists. Um, So at this stage, uh, a lot of our focus has been uh, on individual writers. There are some teams and some newsrooms are using Substack, the Dispatch, the Bulwark. Um, Mark Bittman has a sort of a collective as well using uh, the food writer from New York Times uh, has a collective using Substack as well. That model does work really well, but the bread and butter is the kind of... um, individual writers and it's partly because this is an unbundling phase for the media where uh it's the whole dynamic has been um refocused on the atomic unit which is the the relationship between a reader and a writer and um there are interesting ways that can develop later on but at this stage like there are some there's a fundamental realignment that needs to happen and um, I think of, uh, and, and, and by the way, that makes sense to me because it, do- it feels like something has changed where the individual journalist brand is is bigger, you know, the, 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 it, it's bigger than it was a, a year or two. Um, and I, I suppose I talked about WordPress a bit. One of the things I think about the cycle of WordPress back in the day was you'd get a lot of people would come in at one end and they'd start they feel full of you know excitement ambition they'd write their blog and then yeah. they'd get out of the habit and you'd get this you you generally then get a post where people would acknowledge they're out of the habit and they'd promise they'd come back soon and that would generally be the last post That's the last thing they've ever written on WordPress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and i um and i must admit i i i worry uh, about myself a bit if i look at my 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 brief experiences so far with substack last year when umbrella the the the, the, the 
staff were, were all asked to work four days a week. I chose for my to do amuse myself uh, for the fifth day by starting a Substack called Fifth Day, um, mm-hmm. which um, which I you know I got very enthusiastic about. I built, I wrote, I think two posts, and then I got a book deal, um, and then that was it for the next five months. Um, now yeah. I'm you know full of ambition to do something again in the future with 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 that or with something similar um but i wondered what whether you i know you're only four years in but i wonder yet whether you're seeing much data on people who launch and people who stick and what patterns you're seeing oh yeah well i don't think i'm giving away any i don't have that data at the tip of my tongue but I'm not giving away any company secrets to say that there's a ton of people who start these things and uh, with all the best intentions and all the right energy, and then after one or two posts disappear into the sunset. And Ben Thompson talks about this quite a lot as it pertains to companies like Substack or Shopify. Um, ben Thompson, media and tech analyst, uh, writes a publication called Stratechery, where, where he talks about that turn is actually, for internet businesses, like a positive thing. You get a lot of people trying some people get started some people find traction some people go on to great things and the ones who aren't going to do it just aren't going to do it and self-select out of the system but the ones who stick with it uh and keep on delivering get rewarded for that persistence and consistency so i don't so like i don't i think it's it's, I think it's good that people even get into the system and write their one post and have that as a like a vehicle they can come back to at any time. You have some like some people probably signed up for your Substack and they'll always be there, whether or not you're publishing every day or not. Um, so I don't think that's a negative thing. I don't have the data on it. Um, there's lots that we can do in the product to uh, help um, make it easier for people to keep writing and keep with it. But writing is like writing consistently consistently and running the media business is hard work. It's not meant to be simple. No one's owed anything. And um, you just got to keep showing up. It's, it's on you as the writer. Well, it's just the more frequently, certainly if the lessons of WordPress was the same, the more frequently you post, the more quickly you build your audience. Yeah. And actually the more, the more consistent you are as well, like the easier it gets to, to, to do it. And like from the writer's perspective, like, better to build a habit and get into a rhythm with it rather than to sort of imagine that you're going to show up once a week, but, you know, get a bit loose with it. And then, and then it becomes so easy just to let it slide. Now a question I was going to ask a bit later, you mentioned Ben Thompson, so this is a good chance to ask it. You're quite well placed. I think being U S based, being a former tech journal living in that space um for the umbrella audience people who actually want to be on top of the cutting edge of what people are thinking and talking about in media and tech what sites do you regularly look at i read a ton of Substacks. <clears throat> i read uh i do read ben thompson regularly i read the new york times <laughs> i don't read that for cutting edge stuff i just for general news um, I think the majority of my reading diet is coming from Substacks at the moment. Um, and I won't reveal the names because I don't want to play favorites, but there's, there's so much good writing, um, in technology and in general political and cultural thinking, uh, that I'm not finding elsewhere. Um, 
you know, it's part of me saying this because yeah, well, like I'm one of the founders of this company, but really this reminds me the, the, the kind of stuff I'm finding and enjoying reminds me of the, the period when I had my sort of like intellectual flowering, <laughs> like in the early two thousands when blogging was in its heyday with that feeling is coming back and, and it had gone away for a while for me, at least it, that feeling had gone away for a while as we started to live in a world dominated by social media. And let's talk about Substack's international ambitions. You know, as we talked about your, your from New Zealand yourself, but U S based company. And I, I think most of the, sizzle so far that I'm seeing about Substack seems to sort of bubble out of the US, which is obviously a big population. Um, I'm wondering, do you do you think we will get writers in Australia who will make be able to make a living on Substack? Do you think we've got a big enough market for that? There's already writers in New Zealand making a living from Substack, and it's a smaller... Last time I checked, it's a smaller market than Australia. Um, they, they do tend... Well... They either in New Zealand there's um, a guy named Bernard Hickey who's a, a like well-respected, established finance uh, and business journalist. He hasn't monetized the Substack yet, but it's like in a very strong position once he do, does decide to do that. And so he has a sort of like renown in this field, and, and to be able to do that even in this in a relatively small market. David Farrier is another Kiwi who's got a really successful and popular Substack, but his audience is kind of global because he's a he's a filmmaker and journalist um, and has has some international um, profile and then some others who are just sort of like big and big in their own markets a, a, a woman named emily writes writes about motherhood she has new zealand and australian readers there's some good australian uh writers that i don't have at the tip of my tongue but john birmingham is one of them uh on substack and, yes, and obviously how crawford in, interviewed you recently for his as well COVID, yeah. yeah um 100 the market is large enough to support many great Substack publications and writers because the niches don't have to be huge. You don't have to have millions of readers. You need, if there's 10,000 people who can get on the mailing list, then you have enough for a good media business. So if your niche is um, rugby league in Australia and you think 10,000 people might uh, be interested in reading your stuff, then that's an opportunity. I think that can work. And from that 10,000, how many would you then expect to take the next step and actually subscribe? Yeah. As, as in pay the, to subscribe. Yeah. The math I'm doing on that is that about 10%. We, 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 you know, if I'm making a bet on it at any one time, I'm going to bet that 10%. If you're doing approximately the right things, it's not a hard rule of thumb. It's, it's, I can't say typical, but I can say common. It's um it's very common that ten percent is the magic number. Um, sometimes it's either side of ten percent, but ten percent comes up a lot. Interesting. That's really interesting. Now, I suppose this is only a half hypothetical question, but if I was a journo who might come across Substack, I know one of those things I'm thinking is I'd, I'd be weighing up. Okay, you've got Substack, but you've also got the likes of Facebook and various others all announcing their own kind of lookalike version. So that's one thing is choosing which one. But the other thing is that, you know, at the moment, these guys, they're the, they're the plucky underdogs, you know, they're coming through, they're new, they're pro journalist. Um, and I guess there's always that question at the back of your mind though, what happens if these guys sell to one of the digital giants down the line and it changes or gets shut down or pivoted away? Um, which is a, always a challenge when you, you know, plenty of media people kind of made that mistake with Facebook when they built stuff on someone else's land and then the rules changed. Um, 
Is it a reasonable concern, do you think? Well, I understand it. I wouldn't call it unreasonable, but it's um, it's less of a concern, I think, than you might imagine. It, or it should be less of a concern than you might imagine because the number one thing is that you have the ultimate insurance policy, which is that with Substack, you own your mailing list and you own all your content and IP. You even own the payments relationships, which are controlled in the Stripe account that you would connect to Substack. You don't actually go through Substack to control that. And you can leave with that stuff anytime you like. We've put ourselves in this difficult position where anyone who gets unhappy with Substack can walk away and we can't stop them. <laughs> like there's there's no there's no um there's no great loss to them. I mean there is a loss to them, but in terms of just take, being able to take their audience and their their paying subscribers with them, that, that's simple. And we put that pressure on ourselves because it's the right pressure to put on ourselves, because then we really have to serve the writers. And that's part of being a writer-first, writer-focused company, which I might argue that others who are sort of more advertising-focused um, aggregation companies uh, can't lay claim to. Um, so on the question of what happens if we sell out, <laughs> um, we have no intention of selling. Like, this is not, we're not, we didn't start this company, Chris Draj and I, my co-founders and I, didn't start this company to be successful tech entrepreneurs. We started this company to unbreak the media ecosystem because we live in this attention economy dominated world that is driving us crazy and driving us apart. And so to achieve that, we have a long road ahead and a long mission. And there's no way to achieve that goal if we end up selling to one of the one of the internet giants that we're working in opposition to and then outside of those companies then who makes sense as an acquirer for substack like maybe some people can imagine them but we're not excited by any by any potential acquisition that's not what we're in the game for and on top of that we think that would break the trust we have with writers because writers didn't sign up to um create to build their businesses on Apple or Facebook or Amazon, they signed up to build their businesses that they own and control with the support of this writer-focused company, Substack. And so we're really conscious about not abusing or breaking that trust. I'd be interested um, uh, to understand a bit more about the, 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 there are three of you as co-founders. How, um, you, you, you talked a bit earlier that sort of particularly in the early life, your job was to sort of find and connect with the writers. How do you divide your responsibilities beyond the job titles? Yeah, well, now we're 50 people, so we've got other people to help, <laughs> which is really good. And the, and the job responsibilities like have, have um, split out a little bit. But in the early days, it was a pretty clear and simple and helpful division where Chris uh, Chris Best is the CEO. He was doing CEO stuff and, you know, talking to investors. And he was also the head of product. Like he built, he built the very first version of Substack, like strapped it all together in a spare room. Um, so he's a good developer as well, but he was, he's particularly focused on making Substack the product good and uh, design and build the product, the first, built the first version. And then Jiraj, um, who we convinced very early on to come on as a third co-founder and without whom the company wouldn't have been able to get to where it got is the chief technology officer. And so his whole job in the first place was to build, like literally build Substack and all the features and all the technology and all the uh, supporting infrastructure. And um, 
and then my job was to uh, work with writers and do the comms. And um, something I know you talked about before, um, uh, and I suppose it's, it's advice for people who are you know building up their audience. What what works best, writing for your existing subscribing audience? or writing to find a wider future audience? There's a little bit of a have your cake and eat it um, dynamic with Substack where it's it's not, it's a subtle thing. It's not like very, very clear, but there's a web component. There's your Substack website and there's an email component, which is like your ability to send your posts to people by email. And the they are as important as each other. Because you have the ability to publish to the web, your stories can really travel around the web, uh, being shared from social media or people just sharing links with each other privately. And that means any one post can sort of take off or go viral and you can get a whole lot of readers who didn't otherwise know you existed. And some of those readers might be convinced to get onto your mailing list. And we try to design the product so that it's easy for them to find other articles that can accelerate the process of them falling in love with you and your viewpoint and your work. And then once you've got them on your mailing list, you've got this like retained base and the purest expression of that is the people who are so interested in you that they're willing to pay. And so um, we don't really say you should do one at the one over the other. We think you, can, you have the ability to do both. And often what the best approach is, is to, Take the stuff that is most accessible, has the most, you know, popular appeal, the stuff that even you may put the most work into, it's the most polished, and make that free for everyone and hope <laughs> or hope that it gets shared around a lot on the web and you discover a whole lot of new readers. And then for the people who are um, more committed to you, who are either on your mailing list or actually paying you, you can go deeply, more, like more deep into the weeds with them. You can get nerdier with them. They're the people who want to like, see the behind the scenes footage or like get the backstage pass and your contact with your contact with those people can be more uh, frequent and it can be a little bit more free. You don't have to like present the perfect piece to them uh, all the time. They can be part of this relationship with you where there's an understanding that there are going to be some warts on this, some flaws because it's not, there's always this perfectly formed thing. And that, um, is actually a feature when it comes to the Substack model, not a not a bug. It's this like this strong feeling of connection and intimacy, and that you're on the inside of something um, is a pretty powerful feeling, and it's a great experience to be a subscriber in that kind of relationship. That's really interesting, and I think to go back on your previous point, that thought also because I I'm sure the instinct for people would be put your really best piece behind the paywall. But you're saying actually that's your shop window, so so make sure that goes as widely as possible. Yeah, like the, the stuff that you publish for free should be the best possible demonstration of your worldview and your voice and your quality of thought. Like the things that distinguish you from everyone else who's writing about the same stuff or similar stuff. And then you want to start that process of someone falling in love with you. And once they're falling in love, um, then they're not they won't just begrudgingly pay they'll be happy to pay it will be a great experience for them and so we see part of our job as like slicking the rails for that 
that love that falling in love process to make it make it easy for people who to fall in love with writers that they're willing to fall in love with well um a couple more questions for me um firstly have you got another book in you do you think yeah one day i would like to write another book but i'm uh, not in a rush and do you think this time it'll be a memoir of the Substack days uh, it could be various things but um It'd be interesting to write about the experience of having done this thing. It's a crazy life. <laughs> but I and, don't know. No commitments, no promises. <laughs> and finally, if you could have any writer join Substack who's not currently with you, who would it be? I'm not allowed to play favorites in this way, but I will make an exception for Matt Levine, who should be on Substack. He knows. <laughs> uh, he's a, he's a, he writes about money and culture. He writes about culture, but through the lens of finance for Bloomberg. And uh, he's, he's just, he's a really talented, prolific, funny writer who writes with a lot of, you know, writes about the stuff with a lot of humanity. He's one writer I'd, I'd, I'd want to see on the platform. Hamish, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today's Mumbrella cast. Please do join us for the next episode on Thursday when the editorial team discusses the news of the week and Callum Jaspin talks to Tony Sesto, GM of Marketing for BMW Australia. And speaking of Thursday, if you haven't done so yet, please do sign up for the live stream of the Mumbrella Awards. The ceremony will be live and free from 4pm Eastern. That's on Thursday. Go to mumbrella.com au forward slash mumbrella awards to find out how toodle pip Mm -hmm.